You know, there's a lot of self-storage that advertise free self-storage for one month. And the tenants go, wow, I only need it for, for 14 days. This is perfect. And three years later, they're coming to pick their stuff up. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. Self-storage investing. That's exactly what we're chatting about today. But first, you know the drill. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, the number one podcast geared towards helping international investors break into the U.S. and start buying cash-flowing deals. I'm your boy, Reed Goosens, here in Los Angeles, California. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, as you know, on this show, we only talk to successful real estate entrepreneurs who are absolutely killing it in their chosen business and investing niches. I've interviewed some incredible guests and industry leaders. And today, you know, it's no different. So I provide awesome content from awesome entrepreneurs to help you educate yourself to become uh, a successful real estate entrepreneur and take your investing career to the next level. So let's get cracking and into today's show. Today, the entrepreneur in the hot seat is Hunter Thompson. G'day, Hunter. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate it. Mate, I hope your uh, your weekend or early weekend is off to a flyer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm certainly looking forward to it. I'm in the middle of a a couple closings, so I'm hoping that I get some exciting emails after I get off this call. But um, I'm I'm looking for the weekend as well. Sweet, awesome, mate. So, guys, uh, a little bit of Hunter's background. Hunter is a full-time real estate investor and the founder of Cashflow Connections. Since starting Cashflow Connections, Hunter has helped investors allocate capital to over 100 properties, which have a combined asset value worth more than $350 million. His experience includes investments in self-storage facilities, uh, residential mortgage notes, mobile home parks, single-family residential acquisitions, hard money loans, bridge financing, and multifamily real estate syndications. Uh, mate, pretty incredible stuff there. Uh, <laughs> what, what else don't you do? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, just to be clear, I, I just want to be honest about that introduction. The truth is my, my overall strategy is just to be as diversified as possible. And so when I, when I look at investing, my strategy to invest in passive syndicated opportunities. So it is true that the asset values are in the, that's close to that $350 million range. But with the goal being to be as diversified as possible, this is trying to allocate investors with minimum investments amounts of twenty-five dollars to $50,000 in each one of those particular asset classes. And I'm sure we'll get into the details of some of those, particularly self-storage. Um, but I just think it's important to remember what I do from a structural standpoint. I usually rely on someone else's expertise in a certain asset class or even a certain geographic location, and that way... I can focus on what I like to do, which is talking to investors and helping raise capital and diversifying my own portfolio. And so that way, investors can experience the same kind of diversification. I think it's optimal in terms of a lot of things, most importantly, financial planning and being able to sleep at night, knowing you're not over-allocated to uh, one particular asset class or even one particular operator. Well, awesome, man. And I, you know... That is incredible that you are so diversified over such many different asset classes. And as I mentioned, I went through you know residential mortgage notes, um, hard money, bridge financing, 
I think that's very, very important to take away uh, from, from, from what we're learning from everyone on this show that you have to be diversified. Um, but before we do dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show, do you want to give us a little bit more about your background, where you've come from? And I'm sure you didn't just start out in real estate investing. What got the bug? What got you going and wanting to start getting involved uh, to start making passive income? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I studied economics in college. Uh, not that that really taught me a ton about real world economics, but <laughs> I was always interested in economics. Sure. And when the crash happened in 2008, uh, this changed a lot of things for a lot of perspectives. And I think a lot of people listening to this are probably familiar with this monumental paradigm shift that took place with a lot of people. To be honest with you, this is what got me interested in investing. I was interested in investing in stocks. I was interested in investing in real estate. I just knew from a big picture perspective, it must be an incredible time, generally speaking, to buy when asset prices were so depressed. But I didn't really get it until 2010. And the reason that I say that is that that's when the European debt crisis happened. And my perspective on this is a little different because in 2010, when the European debt crisis happened, it was basically very similar to what happened in the US in 2008, but it was in Europe. And this made me open my eyes to see how intricate and how correlated and how unpredictable and how completely unmitigatable these risks are. Um, the real moment that, that happened with me is I remember everyone on CNBC was watching the German bond yields. And they were saying if the German bond yields went above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. And if it stayed below 7%, the S&P 500 was going to shoot up by 500 points. And this is what was happening every single day. And I kind of had this moment. I, mean, I live in, in Los Angeles, so I'm on Pacific time. So I was waking up in the middle of the night, basically, from my perspective at least, to watch the market open to see what was going to happen with my, my stock portfolio. And I realized, how can the German bond yields be playing this crucial of a role in my financial well-being? And so that's when I realized I have got to find a way to mitigate myself from these type of risks. And the way that I found to do that was to really simplify the investment. And we'll go into some details as to how I go about that. But from a big picture perspective, real estate is relatively simple. There is a property. There's someone that wants to rent it. If it's rented, you're making money. If it's not, you're not. You're not going to be able to, you know, if I'm just one person or if I just have a small company, how am I going to conduct the due diligence that's required to find out how many iPads Apple is going to sell next quarter in China? This is an unrealistic thing to, to expect that someone that can do with a, with a small company. So it's relatively easy to manage the risks that go along with investing in real estate. And just the sheer simplicity of the whole thing kind of, that kind of directed me in that direction. Well, I love it. And I, you hit on some really key uh, points there, which is that uh, stock investing, you don't have control. Someone else is in control. You're saying that you know the, the German stock market, if it went a certain way up or down, it was going to directly affect your net worth. And that's something that, you know, to me, blows my mind that investors can be like, no, I want to invest in stock markets. And essentially, it's, it's just gambling at the end of the day. If you're not knowing what you're doing and you're just a mom and pop type of investor and you can't, you don't have any control, I think that the, the main thing is that it's, you know, 
getting control and gaining control of, of that real estate class. Um, so very interesting stuff, mate. I want to dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show, which is talking about um, self-storage uh, investing, investing in self-storage units. Uh, I've never done it. Um, you are the expert in it. I, I, I've, we've been talking a little bit offline. So from a macro point of view, do you want to walk us through the investment strategy of self-storage units? Um, are you looking at distressed properties? Are you looking at rehabbing them, repositioning them? What, where, where do you sort of stand in, in where we are in the market cycle? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I'll probably take one step even further back away to kind of justify the interest in self-storage in general to look at why I look at the type of self-storage that I look at um, from a cyclical perspective. So as you're probably familiar with, there's just a lot of really negative economic data out there that suggests from a big picture perspective, it's not a good time to focus on risky investments that rely on appreciation. Okay, there's a time for that in the cycle if you have the risk criteria, if you have the risk, if you're comfortable with that risk profile. But now is not the time. Um, the, the couple of data points that I look at that are really compelling to me are the amount of baby boomers that are entering retirement, 10,000 to 13,000 every single day. They are, you know, retirement in quotation marks, of course because they're usually entering retirement with very little savings. And the average Social Security check is about $1,200 a month, and the average two-bedroom apartment in the U.S. rents for about $1,200 a month. So you have this contraction going on with the older generations, but you also have a similar contraction going on in the, uh, the, the 20s and the 30s. And because of that, about 50% of all college graduates are moving home with their parents after graduating. A lot of this is because they were anticipating jobs that were much more lucrative than the ones they were getting offered. And a lot of them are going back to school. Some are taking on more debt to go back to school. So you have this contraction taking place in both the older generations and the younger generations. And because of that, it's, it's really clear to me at least that it's a really good time to focus on recession-resistant, recession-resilient assets that perform well during economic downturns. And self-storage is a tremendous example of this for a couple reasons. Um, number one, self-storage by its very nature, this is something that people use because they need it. This is not a discretionary type of real estate. This is not like timeshares or something like that. And people, people need it uh, because usually they're going through economic transitions. And a lot of these transitions can be brought on by recessions. So the obvious examples are uh, downsizing, people losing their jobs, people uh, tr trading jobs and having to move because of those jobs, having kids moving home for college, or dealing with foreclosures, something like that. All of these are more common during recessions. So when you have an asset that is well known to perform well during recessions, you're going to have a much more stable asset because when the economy does well, everything does well, right? All types of real estate generally do well. But in recessions, there's a few type of real estate that the demand just really increases during those times, so it kind of balances out the two. Um, so that's, that's kind of why I like self-storage in general. But then what the type of self-storage that I look at individually is value-add self-storage. And this is kind of, uh, there's a couple different facets for this. In 2006 and seven, a ton of these facilities were being built every single year. So 3,000, 4,000 every single year. After the collapse, this number went from 4,000 to 40,000 
in certain years. And so you have this massive amount of, of self-storage square footage that's out there that the market has now absolved or resorbed basically. And you have occupancy levels that are very high, generally in the 80s. But these managers are not taking advantage of all the value-add components to the self-storage industry. And you know some of the examples of this are they're the most the most glaring example of this is they're not building relationships with U-Haul. They don't have the capacity to take commissions from truck rentals. They are not uh, implementing strategies that have been tested for years. They're not raising rents consistently. They are not uh, charging for insurance. They're not conducting online marketing and sales. They're not building out uh, relationships with military or educational industries, uh, most notably college. But notice, none of the things I just mentioned there are capital intensive whatsoever. So you have this amazing opportunity where people are renting this facility, but the efficiencies just aren't there. And so if you have a, a system in place where you can buy a facility based on in-place income and raise those levels of efficiency, you have a very profitable and low-risk way to invest because you're not dumping extra money in the facility. Right, right, right. Interesting. That's um, you've definitely hit on some points there that I wouldn't have even thought about. Like, so talk a little bit about the U-Haul value add. Like, you know, in general, people go into um a property. I'm assuming, and the property managers fall asleep at the wheel, right? Like, like in multifamily, the the property managers doesn't you know keep the upgrade to the properties or whatnot. So, is it the same sort of idea with um with with self storage units and understanding the different other uh, you know income generations that you can create through U-Haul, through online marketing, through partnering with uh, education and, and army uh, organizations? What 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 specifically, if you want to get into the nuts and bolts of, do you like to look for? In a, in a property when you're sort of dis, in a distressed state, if so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I'll, I'll answer the U-Haul question first because it's just, it's so obvious. So basically, when people are moving and they're moving their stuff, they need rental trucks. And there are many, many operators out there that do not take advantage of this amazing opportunity. It is very easy to call U-Haul and say, you can park your trucks on our facility and we get a commission for renting those trucks. And so, again, that's not capital intensive at all. That's just a matter of knowing to do that. And so when those trucks are parked there and they, they generally get rented, this can increase. This basically goes straight to the bottom line. And we're talking about $2,500 a month, $4,000 a month in properties that I've invested in. I have seen them go from $0 in U-Haul commissions to $3,500 a month in U-Haul commissions. So if you take $3,500 a month times 12 divided by an eight cap or so, I mean, you're talking about at least a half million dollars in equity that you've raised by basically making a phone call and putting in that system. And so that's just, that's a tremendous opportunity. And there's tons of facilities out there that are not implementing the strategy. Right, right. Interesting. And do you have to in implement any specific type of uh, additional employees to cover that operations, so to speak? Yeah, so we do we do have a management company that we work with. We work with one of the largest management management companies in the in the country, and you know we'll go into some of the managing strategies and what that kind of takes in a little bit. Um, but but we definitely it's not capital intensive. It's not it doesn't take a ton of man hours to build that relationship. Uh, U-Haul is well versed in this type of situation. They just uh, people just don't reach out. Don't don't build that relationship. 
if you wanted to, I can. Uh, you, you asked a question about the, you know, what we look for when we look for a, a typical value add situation. One of the interesting things about self storage is that the rental increases can be fairly aggressive because the gross dollar amount doesn't really affect the renter. What I mean by that is, if you have a unit uh, facility that averages hundred and fifty dollars a month, if you raise that rent by six percent you're going from $150 a month to $159 a month. Now, 6%, obviously, in multifamily and in almost every asset class, 6% is completely unheard of from a long-term perspective. Right? That's a, that would be a very lucrative rental increase. Um, but with self-storage, the question is, is someone going to hire movers, rent a U-Haul truck, take a day off work, pack up all their stuff, and drive down the street for $9 a month? Because when you raise it from 150, 6% goes from 150 to 159. Generally speaking, the math just doesn't make sense for them to make that choice. And so it's very unlikely that self-storage renters are going to move right down the street. So because of the fact that they're basically stuck there, because the math just doesn't make sense, what we look for is a big discrepancy in physical occupancy and economic occupancy. And what I mean by that is the physical occupancy is obviously the percentage of square footage that's rented, but the economic occupancy is the percentage at which the efficiencies are being uh, conducted. So, for example, if a, a property is significantly under market rent or if a property is significantly above in terms of expense ratio, it's very easy for us to raise rents very aggressively because we're not going to have a lot of kickback from tenants because the math just doesn't really make sense. So that's one of the main things we look for is this big discrepancy because you have these, these tenants that are basically stuck there and you have a, it's very easy to raise rents, especially when you have monthly lease renewals. Interesting. So that's, that's a, that brings me to the next point of um, understanding what are the market rents typically. Like in, in multifamily investing, I can jump on to many different websites out there. I, is it the same with the self-storage units that you can go online and you can understand if it's $150 a month, is that a typical uh, per unit um, or per average unit rental uh, in that market? And, and if you do, what sort of uh, resources do you use? Yeah, there is basically a lot of self-storage facilities have uh, their own websites, um, but then a lot of them do online marketing as well. And there also is sites that you can go to compare those, to compare those rents. Sometimes they're regional, sometimes not. Um, but generally speaking, the cost to rent is somewhere in the, for a 10 by 10 unit is kind of the standard in the industry. Um, so just a box, obviously. And uh, that's going to go for about a hundred in the markets we look at, at least it's going to go from about a hundred dollars a month to $135 a month. That is non-climate controlled. And then you have climate controlled going from $125 a month to $160 a month, somewhere in that range, uh, depending on the market. Interesting. And what sort of markets are you investing in? Um, are you investing here in California or investing into state? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, as I kind of alluded to at the beginning, my focus is really on cash flow. I think it makes sense for a lot of reasons, most notably in terms of dependability and reliability and your ability to predict the future because um, cash flow is relatively non-volatile compared to asset values. Because of that, we're kind of driven towards the Midwest or the Southeast. And, you know, we'd love to invest in California. Unfortunately, the cash flow just typically doesn't make sense. 
especially in year one, year two, or something like that. So we look for cash flow going in, we look for strong cash flow, especially in year three or so. And that kind of drives us to the Midwest or the Southeast. And the operators we usually work with have a lot of market advantage in the Southeast just because that's where they're from. So when you have market advantage, you've got a lot of brokers sending you those deals. And so we get a lot of off-market transactions. And it just so happens that we end up in that geographic location. And uh, within that geographic location, we usually look at secondary or tertiary markets, the type of markets that not a lot of people go to vacation, but there's, these, there's those cities out there that are just pumping out reliable cash flow returns that are really lucrative for investors. Right. You're talking like the Midwest, Kansas City, uh, Oklahoma City, those sort of um, St. Louis, Texas, those sort of areas, correct? Yes. And, you know, sometimes even markets that are more tertiary than that, something like a military military uh, cities in particular. So Fayetteville, North Carolina um, would be a facility. We have a facility there. There is a, a military base very close to there. Those individuals make really great self-storage uh, tenants because their deployments are usually longer than the average self-storage tenant lasts. So we do a lot of market outreach to get relationships with them and drive traffic from the military bases to the self-storage facilities. Nice, nice. And that sort of segues into my next question is how long does a renter in a self-storage unit have a lease for? You said it was month by month or do you try and lock them in for 12 months or longer? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, but definitely short-term rental agreements. And okay. it's very much the industry standard to have 30 days. Mm -hmm. And this allows for a lot of flexibility in terms of operational standpoint. Um, if you have to evict someone, it's a very quick process. If you have a problem tenant, it's a very quick process. And more importantly, uh, because of what we were talking about earlier with the aggressive rental increases, you can raise rents very quickly on 30-day leases. Okay. And we actually try to raise rents twice a, twice a year. Um, and this is you know something we have a track record doing over and over again. And when I say we, I mean in conjunction with our property management company. Sure, sure. And so what on average do you see? Is, is, it, is it month by month? Does someone just say, I'm going to truck my stuff in this uh, self-storage unit for a month? Or do you usually see people between 6 to 12 months? What's the sort of sweet spot? That's a really good question, and the answer is both, but it's oh. a little bit different than you may assume. Everyone thinks they're going to use it for a month, and <laughs> it never happens, and I think we've all been guilty of that, right? So yeah. they say, you know, there's a lot of self-storage that advertise free self-storage for one month, mm -hmm. and the tenants go, wow, I only need it for, for 14 days. This is perfect. And <laughs> Then three years later, they're coming to pick their stuff up. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how when you first look at a deal, uh, I know when I look at my multifamily deals, I, I sort of use a rule of thumb of 50% for expense ratios. Uh, what are you using on, on uh, self-storage units? You know, it's a little bit lower because we're not providing as much, but I wouldn't say that you're looking at below 40, even though I have seen some deals that are underwritten that way and I've seen some deals that, that perform that way. But generally speaking, 45 is okay. right around where it's going to be. Right, right, right. And talk to me about the types of expenses. You know, obviously you've got property tax, you've got utilities, I'm assuming you pay for, or do you try and bill back some of those utilities to the tenants, i.e. the people who rent, rent the storage units? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So we wouldn't be billing back directly to them. Uh, we would be on the hook for the repairs, the maintenance, the building maintenance. There's landscaping, pest control. We obviously want security. We want cameras, 24-hour lights and 24-hour uh, entrance, etc. cetera. Uh, truck maintenance for the trucks, if we keep the trucks on the property. Uh, trash removal, water and sewer. So those type of things yep. um, that you would find in a typical commercial property. Right, right. And so there's no bill back system going on. You just hit, you just, you know, take the hit and then you base that on, and then whatever the, the monthly rent is, that just covers it based on a 40, a roughly a 45% ratio, correct? Exactly. Right, right, right. So um, in terms of how are you finding your deals? You, you briefly mentioned before that brokers are, are bringing them to you. Have you got a network or is there a network of people out there who, you know, the sole business is focusing on finding awesome self storage units, uh, distressed self storage units? Yeah, that's that's um, that's a really important question. So you know, all of this conversation has been a lot of it has to have to do with why I like self storage as an investment. But we, this stuff all may sound great on paper, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good bet because it's so critical in terms of management and the sponsor of the opportunity, right? So the sponsor that we have worked with in the past is is one of the largest in in the country, I think top 50 in the country. And this is the, this provides the, the consistent deal flow that we, we were working with. Um, they have about 30 facilities and they focus in the Southeast. So we continually get deal flow from the brokers that they have established relationships for the past 30 years or so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. So they're bringing those market uh, off, off market deals, I assume, right? To, to Many you. times. Yep. Um, sometimes, you know, you can find great deals on LoopNet that people just aren't willing to touch for whatever reason. It doesn't mean they're, they're not good deals. Uh, LoopNet has plenty of self-storage facilities out there that would probably hit our criteria if they were in the geographic locations that we focus on. But also a lot of off-market transactions and, um, you know, a lot of on-market transactions. And the reason it's you're able to buy on-market transactions is that one of the very great things about self-storage as an asset class is that the size of the self-storage facilities don't attract major players. I'm never going to be bidding against Warren Buffett because these facilities don't get up into that price range. Um, so, you know, a typical facility may be worth somewhere between $3 million or maybe $10 million, or maybe 15 That's not going to attract a private equity guy because they're trying to distribute, let's say, $200 million. How many are they going to have to buy to, to get fully allocated? So you're kind of playing in the space where you have a big enough facility to allow for tenant diversification and unit type diversification, mm -hmm. but you're not going to be competing with a lot of people. So sometimes we may be the only offer on the table and uh, that way we can buy properties that are on the market. Right, right. And what typically do you look at like a price per self-storage unit? You know, I, I talk about price per door uh, in multifamily. What are you looking for? Uh, average rule of thumb, would you like to see in your t tertiary markets in a distressed uh, asset? Somewhere between, it's usually on price per, price per square foot or net okay. rentable square foot. Yep. And this is going to be somewhere between $40 to $100 uh, okay. square, foot. square foot. And usually the replacement costs are going to be somewhere in the 80 to 100, 120, um, somewhere, somewhere in that range, uh, right. depending on the market again. Right, right. So you're more looking at the square footage because um, I, I, I assume that these self-storage units, you could actually change the partitions to be a, a larger or smaller. They'd be quite easy to, to, to fix around, right? 
Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the value add components and one of the ways that you can really add value to a facility is adding climate, climate control units. So this wouldn't be actually changing for, uh, what you were saying earlier about the size of each unit, but this would be going in and finding a facility that clearly needs climate controlled units and just building out climate controlled units or rehabbing certain units that are non-climate controlled, turning into climate controlled. Um, I think the optimal range again for climate controlled, you want to have somewhere between 20 and 40% Climate controlled in that area, it's a great upsell, and a lot of people like that. Um, okay. You can imagine for things like art or something like that, where the climate's gonna could have a deep impact on the stuff that they're trying to store. Right, right, right. And I'm sure you would have had your fair share of uh, pretty hairy storage stuff. People trying to store <laughs> some, uh, so maybe some illegal things in there that they shouldn't be doing. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it happens. But here's the way that usually happens: right. poor management. Right. Yeah. Right. And yep. so it just so happens that in a lot of these hairy asset classes, uh, everything starts to work beautifully if you make people pay on time. Right. And so it just very quickly happens again with the 30 day lease agreements. If you go in there and there's 30% of the people that are there are used to paying not on time, usually the place looks like a dump. But with this asset class, within 60 days, within 90 days, if you're implementing a no pay, no stay policy, the, the, the facility turns around very quickly. Interesting, interesting. And so do you guys have the power or does your property management have the power to, if they haven't paid in 30 days, they, they can go and open it up and take the stuff out? Is that how it works? You know. Yeah, uh, Yeah. that's exactly right. And, and di different states are different usually, but um, you know, like, like it looks on TV, that's pretty much the whole thing. They really? do do the... They do cut the locks on at certain times. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Um, tell me, talk to me about the asset class in terms of, you know, in multifamily, I talk about class A, class B, class C. What are you talking about? And then in mobile home parks, you talk about star, two stars, three stars, four stars. What, did, what is it for self-storage units? Yeah, so we look at A, B, and C class, okay. generally speaking, and we want to be buying B class and turning them into A class. Mm. We really want to have the ideal, you know, the Louis Vuitton version of a self-storage facility. We want to have, we want to have a great looking facility for a lot of reasons. Usually people go to a self-storage facility twice in the duration of their lease, right? They go to move their stuff in, they go to move their stuff out. Mm -hmm. And if they go to move their stuff in, or if they're going to see what the facility looks like, we have to have a very good first impression because most likely will be the only impression. Yep. So when it comes to the differences between the classes, it's a matter of amenities and presence. Uh, uh, putting out this, putting out this vibe, basically. I, the majority of the tenants are women, generally speaking. So we want to make sure that they feel very safe. We want to make sure that the area is well lit, um, and then also we want to provide amenities such as having a 24-hour surveillance in terms of cameras, 24-hour entrance. We want to have an on-site property manager that lives on the facility. We want to have an office that suggests entrance. And uh, those are the type of things that start to add up to dictate which class you're involved in. Um, and so we brand, we rebrand almost all of the facilities in conjunction with the property manager, like I said, of course, with the same branding and um, try to build that brand awareness as soon as we get into the market. Interesting. And so when you do look at a, a potential deal, um, do some deals, some storage units, 
what would someone what would scare the average investor away and what would you rub your hands and go yes this is awesome because i know what to do with this particular uh this particular deal is there any sort of things that you say like oh that it might not have the security fence up or it might be lacking i don't know there might be something that you look at and say ah i see what they're doing and it might scare someone else away but i'm i'm going to jump dive straight in you know what that's a great question because i think that the answer and this is just my perspective but i think that the answer is actually the inverted version of what most people think of <laughs> so when people see Generally, people think, oh, this looks like a dump. I can turn this thing around. Yep. I think at least that's the way that I look at it, right? If yep. you go and you see that the property manager is doing a really bad job, you're like, wow, this has got, there's money to be made. I don't know exactly how yet. I haven't seen the books, but they're leaving some money on the table. That isn't scaring people away. I think when people see, oh, they don't have 24-hour surveillance, people mm -hmm. think, I can get in there and turn that on really quickly. Right. I think the answer with this with this asset class is the opposite, meaning if they see a facility that is 95% occupied in a market that is 95% occupied, they pass immediately. Mm. But that's a huge mistake because of that economic occupancy thing that we were talking about earlier. There could be a ton of money to be made in a facility that's 95% occupied because they are just able to raise rent so aggressively so quickly or decrease expensive drastically. So. That's what I see as being, uh, you know, particularly with sophisticated investors, they get a PPM or they get an executive summary that says invest in this 99% occupied facility that is in a market that's 92% occupied. You're thinking, how is there anything here that's going to, there's no meat on the bone. Right. But, um, you know, I've seen it several times where you can, you know, like I said, the obvious example with the U-Haul is very not capital intensive, but um, you can raise the equity very quickly. Or another example is merchandise sales. Uh, we had a facility that one in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where the previous owner was allowing, he had one pair of scissors and he was allowing all the tenants to use his scissors to cut the boxes that they had when they moved in. <laughs> so this seems like, okay, fine, they're missing a couple of dollars here and there. But if you, if you realize how frequently people come to these facilities without scissors, Yep. And then multiply that by 12 and divide it by a seven cap. Mm -hmm. You're talking about a lot of money. And maybe just as importantly, we want to brand merchandise and so that people can use our merchandise and then get that merchandise out into the community to raise that brand awareness. So if people are buying boxes from us, they have the brand logo all over them. So when they move, their friends see the brand. Maybe next time they drive by our signage, they are going to be more likely to check the facility out. Interesting. That's a, that's kind of an interesting way of doing it in terms of uh, white labeling it, as they say in that, the Amazon business. But uh, awesome stuff. And uh, one last question before we get into the top five investing tips is, what typically are you? You know, you say Class B to Class A. So cap rates for that sort of asset. Um, I know in hotels it's a little bit higher. I know in multifamily it's like around the five to six caps or seven caps or eight caps for for like a Class C. For a class B, class A, what cap rate would you be expecting? Yeah, so cap rates are obviously really important if you're focusing on cash flow, which I am. Um, but the interesting thing about self storage is because of the combination of the fact that tenants are basically stuck there and the fact that a lot of people are mismanaging the facility and that there are monthly renewals, meaning you can raise rents very quickly. Sometimes you can buy low cap rates that are deceivingly low because mm -hmm. they will be relatively high within 12 months period. So for example, you can buy something that on paper looks based on 12, trailing 12, 
may look like a four and a half cap, but may be a 10 cap within 12 or 18 months. Interesting. So the range is, uh, is kind of different, but I would say that I like to see uh, six and a half or seven caps in the type of markets that I was talking about, not tertiary markets. In tertiary markets, seven and a half, and in secondary markets, I'd say six and a half or more so. Awesome stuff. Talk to me finally about your your investors in you know your, your cash flow connections. I know you said I introduced you at the beginning of the show, saying that you'd started this group. Um, how did you get involved in that? How did you come to to to, to fund uh, found that group? And how, obviously, it's been massive success uh, up until this point. Well, yeah. I mean, when I kind of, I was kind of alluding to in the beginning, I had just just incredible interest in real estate very quickly, just from a big picture perspective. And I moved out to Los Angeles and started going to real estate events all over. Within two and a half hours, I was going probably three times a week or so, just trying to meet as many people as I could and trying to meet the right people. And you know. I, I think that well, I'll go around the about way of answering your question. Basically, sure. I was kind of uh, not impressed at all, but I didn't know that I was not impressed. Okay, <laughs> so I was going to all these events where people were saying, "This is the opportunity of a lifetime." Think Kim Vines, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Prices are low. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. You know, yep. here's the wire instructions. Basically, just send the money, <laughs> and you're going to do great. And I could have made a lot of big mistakes, um, but luckily I met a really great group of individuals pretty quickly on that experience, and they were all very much on the same page, which is education. Mm-hmm. And that is why I really appreciate what you're doing, because you know anyone listening to this knows, you've probably told them a million times, education first. You are always going to be able 100%. to find another opportunity. The easiest way to show this is that it's true. That was the opportunity of a lifetime in 2010. But the deals I see now are far better than the deals I saw in 2010 because of my network. And so that's kind of how the company started was I was surrounded by individuals that that all thought very similarly and very much in line with what I was was trying to accomplish in terms of financially and ethically. And I built a business around that philosophy um, in terms of education and as well as low-risk cash flow and generally speaking, under-promising and over-delivering. Awesome. Awesome stuff. And I, I love what you said about the access to different deals or better deals now in 2016 than was in 2010 because of your network. And I always say on this show, your net worth is a result of your network. And uh, I think you should hold uh, hold, your head, hold your head pretty high because I know from personal experience, you, you have a very great uh, team around you of investors and uh, sponsors. So so well done, mate. Um, are you working with any international investors? This show is all about educating international investors on the US real estate market. Are you working with anyone right now? You know, I haven't had any international investors yet, but we are, when I mentioned that the fund that's looking, uh, the, the, the emails I'm waiting for that are coming up just in a minute now, that actually is going to be focused on international investors. So we have done a system in place and a partner of mine has done a ton of marketing overseas, specifically in Japan. Um, so it's an incredible opportunity uh, to, to diversify your portfolio out of your home country. And, um, you know, I'm all for that. Awesome. That's what we're all about here. We try to get people uh, educated in the U.S. Uh, US investing market and different cash flowing opportunities. And I know self-storage units are definitely one that people ask me to do to cover. So that's why I'm covering it today. Uh, mate, I, I know you're primed to give me your top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? <laughs> yeah, we can get, I'll, I'll probably come up with some on the fly, but um, we, can, we can go for it. Let's do it.
What's the number one habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Yeah, so I think we just kind of touched on it, which is that uh, the, the, people, the people that I surround myself by have played a critical role in my development as an investor. And if you have that team around you of people that are all on the same page, you're going to feel like there's someone pushing you behind you. And it's kind of a snowballing effect right. where I don't have a choice. It's not a matter of choice whether I want to get up and work or not or something like that. Things have to be done. And so because of that, I'm up and I'm excited to do these things. And I'm excited to uh, you know, basically meet expectations on a daily basis. So it's really just surrounding yourself with people that are – uh, more motivated than you, more educated than you, smarter than you, people that you shouldn't even be close to. If you're surrounding yourself by those individuals, it's, it's going to work out for you. And this is something that I have, this is one thing that I can say that I'm proud of myself for doing. I have no business being in a lot of the rooms I've managed to work myself into in some of the meetings I've been, but it's, it's been able to, uh, it's been able to help me. And um, I think that they're probably happy that I've been in those meetings as well. Awesome. Well, well, well that, that goes back to probably a personal branding thing that you have, you know, you're the guy to go to with just reliable cash flow who's, who's you know, ethical and credible. Like that's, uh, that's awesome stuff. So, so well done. But surrounding yourself, what you're saying is surrounding yourself with credible people to make you, you know, achieve that next level, right? Absolutely. And I think that the first tell is just kind of what I touched on earlier. The first tell is, do they tell you to focus on education or do they tell you to fund immediately? Yeah. And it's really just not a good idea to, to fund without feeling 100%, especially since these are illiquid investments. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you're entering a marriage contract with the sponsor. And the yep. sponsor is actually entering a marriage contract with the investors as well. So it's mutual. So it's in everyone's best interest that you feel 100% educated and confident before funding. And if that's the type of environment that the people are talking to you about, then that would be the type of person I would want to be around. Yep. No, 100% agree. Uh, I talk to investors all the time and some of them can be coming too too eager and it's like, well, 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 Turbo, I've got to vet you as much as you've got to vet me. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I always, talk, always got to talk. It, it's, it's too, it takes two to tango. It doesn't just mean, you know, the, the sponsor's not just out there saying, fun, 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 if they are, uh, run away, you know, run away. And, and, and vice versa, you know, I'm a sponsor. If someone's coming to you with a check and I've never met them before, it's like, ease up, you know, who are you? <laughs> I don't know who you are. Let's let's go for coffee or at least, at least have coffee. You're going to date me before you're going to get involved in this deal. So, <laughs> uh, mate, who's the most influential person in your career to date? You know, I have a very good answer for that or a very specific answer for that, but he's going to be morbidly embarrassed if I call him out. I'm going to do it anyway. Um, there's an individual named Jeremy Roll yep. who played an absolutely critical role in my perspective as an investor, not only from his mentoring me uh, from our relationship, which we are definitely friends and have a good relationship, but also he created a networking event company called FIBI. And so there's several of these chapters out in LA, all of which have a very similar education first type of mindset. And that networking group has probably accounted for 80% of the deals I've ever been involved in. So I'm tremendously thankful for him and he's played a a critical role in, in, in a lot of my business. I know Jeremy very well. And if you well. haven't had, okay, good. So if you haven't had him on yet, he's make a great guest. Um, he, he's incredibly intelligent. And, he, he's uh, actually, awesome. he's actually been on the show and uh, his, oh, po- perfect. his podcast will be coming up, being released in a few weeks, probably a few weeks before your podcast. So if, when you're listening to this, go back and listen to Jeremy's show. He's very, very good. Yeah, exactly. A very, very awesome guy. Uh, and last question, mate, is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? 
Yeah, so you can check out my website, cashflowconnections.com. And, um, you know, to be honest with you, you can probably tell from the conversation, I love talking about this stuff. I really, really like helping investors, especially new investors, most importantly, to help them make sure they don't make early mistakes. There's no reason for anyone to make that type of mistake. If you have resources like Reed, if you have resources like the people that he's having on, reach out to them and just ask them their perspective on things. So I'd love to, to network with any of the people listening to this, and I'm always down to discuss stuff. Well, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people trying to ping you uh, and hit you up to understand a little bit more about your self-storage units. Well, mate, I want to thank you for dropping in and chatting with us today. I know your time is very precious, and I want to be mindful of that. Is there anything else that we want, uh, we didn't cover that you want to just uh, get off your chest? Yeah, well, I just want to thank you again for having me. And like I said, education first, and the stuff that you're putting out is really, really great. So thanks again. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, there you have it. Another true action taker. Hunter is really kicking some massive goals right now. And I did love how he broke down everything about self-storage units. If you did like what he had to say, please reach out to him. Uh, hit him up. I'm sure he's only too willing to help meet up with you for a coffee. Well, uh, now make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's conversation with Hunter. And all the links we did mention will be on my website. As you know, go to rsmpropertygroup.com and click on the podcast tab. Remember, if you are in the LA area and you want to grab coffee with myself, then hit me up. Hit, shoot me an email at read at rsnpropertygroup.com. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in and continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge because that's what we're all about here on this show, continuing to grow your financial IQ. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by just searching Reed Goosens. Uh, if you tweet at me, I will tweet back. And if you do like this show, please jump on iTunes and give the show a five-star review. It's, uh, it helps me grow my community of eager international listeners wanting to buy US real estate. So until next week, week. Take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing.